Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week. I am one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brennan B. Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 115th episode of the Nauticast titled Shadow of a Doubt Part 1, an analysis of a clash of kings. Davos 2, man, just feels great to say that, in which Stannis and his new sycophants would very much like to move on from Brinley's very unfortunate death, please. But Sir Courtney Penrose, he ain't going to allow it. He sure won't. And yes, this is part one. It's going to be part one, not of two, but three episodes <laughs> on this chapter of A Clash of Kings Davos 2, because as you're about to see, we managed to milk quite a bit out of even this one small chunk of it. So next week is going to be part two, in which we deal with the conversation between Stannis and Davos that happens right after this confrontation with Courtney Penrose. And then the week after that will be part three of A Clash of Kings Davos 2, in which we deal with Davos and Melisandre and their conversation right before Melisandre unleashes the second shadow baby. And of course, this is in part just because we love the Baratheon Davos Melisandre start of the story line but also because this chapter really is just massive and dense and so well done that we wanted to just get into every little bit of minutiae with you so it's going to be a three-parter and we can't wait to do it cannot wait to do that with you sir and with all you folks who are tuning in live and those of you who are listening on our regular podcast feeds thank you all very very much so as always this episode is brought to you by our small council our hand of the king wolfman zach Grand Maester Tim Bob, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard Mark N, Lord Travis, Master of Ships and War of the Waves, Sir Keith J, Master of Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Archmaester June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, War of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the Other Woman, and Mistress of Whispers, Lord Micah, Ward of the West, the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the Gym That Was Promised, the High Bearded Priest, Lord Jake Assistant to the Hand of the King, Lady Zine of Lyrium, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dane, and Prince Rhaegar's Targaryen Sad Prophecy Boys Club, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Sir Jasper the Cruel, the King's Justice, Lawrence, Prince of Dorm, Kelly, World of East and Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Steve the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of, High, Knight of High Garden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Anonymous, Lord Anonymous, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, the Priest of the Drowned God, the King's Cook, Noli Oli, Master of Cannoli, Sir Sorcedelica, Prince Matthew of House and Proud, Soy Boy of Summerhall, Defender of the Fifth Book, and Swing Dance with Dragons, Sir K.W. Dent, Elsie the Rain of the Blackwood Guard, and Batman of the Seven Kingdoms, Lord Pension for Nostalgia, Queer Alex, Rainbow Quimetter of the Ladies and Gentle Dems, Lord Quint Esquire, Master of Absolutely Positively Not Serving Suspire for Several Unnamed High Lords and Ladies in order to further the secret Blackfire style conspiracy to overthrow the oppressive Small Council. Haldiver, the waiter for T-Wow, A.A. Braun, Dampere, Prophet of the Forsaken and High Priest of Euron Crow's Eye, Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H-Town, Veneris of House Colgarian, the first of her name, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress of Art, the Overwork, Queen of the Pencils and the Eraser, the first draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee the Great Game of Thrones, Portress of the Realm, Lady Realist of Seven Kingdoms, Blender Paints, and Maker of Drawings. Shamal the Slayer, Lord Adam T, Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christoph Logos, Bloody Scorpio of the Redfield, Defender of the Letter of Kin, and the Wolverine of House Corgoyle. Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse-Faced Lesbians, Sir Josh Snow, Bastard Bounty Hunter of the North, Sir Veor, Chief of Parties in the Frozen Wastes, Lord Peter, Lady Ashley, Lady Raj, Mistress of Horse, The Dead Shepherd Reborn, Preacher of the Poor Fellows, Marshall, Harrison, Absent, Shipwrecked, and the J.C., Grave, Rob Stark, the cadaver king and horror of Harren Hall. Olaf, proponent of establishing a feudal, pseudo-democratic system of great councils wherein every vote counts. Thank you for no longer making me say that fucking quaith line. Sir Tim, the knight who is guided by voices. Lord Nick, and our newest member of the small council. Everyone give a warm welcome to Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dane and Prince Rhaegar Targaryen Sad Prophecy Boys Club. Welcome, Sir Jack. Thank you to all our counselors and a special welcome to Sir Jack. I love the Sad Prophecy Boys Club. I think I've been a 
an unwilling founding member of that club since childhood. Mm-hmm. And just a just a little trivia note: Sir Jack is a friend of Hedgeco, Cap of the Airship Arrogance, whose name you might have heard before, whose name also changed there. Go back and listen; you can find out where Hedgeco's name did change indeed. So, welcome and thank you to Hedgeco for introducing your friend to us. Our spoiler warning: as we say on all episodes, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three Dunkin' Devellos, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show, anything and everything. Our question this week was asked during our Q&A episode, but we're going to get to it here. It comes from Sir James Cook, a poor fellow patron, who asks, Before my question, I want to take the time to thank you both for what you do here. I've managed to get the spark of ice and fire alive inside me, and you both are partially responsible for this. Looking forward to listening for the books chapter, book slash chapters yet to come. Now, for both Emmett and Jeff, I want to ask if you've ever been into RPG slash role-playing games such as Dungeons & Dragons. I've been the Dungeon Master for a Game of Thrones setting D&D for almost two years now, set in the time period leading up to and beyond the Dance of the Dragons. The story picked up in 125 AC, and we are now two years in, and my, how the story slash histories have changed. <laughs> I know this isn't so directly related to A Song of Ace and Fire, however, I was curious on if anyone has attempted something similar, and if there's any sort of community resource or interest in something like this. Long may your podcast reign, gentlemen. James K. Cook III. Well, thank you very much, James, for the question. Uh, I've always been more theoretically into Dungeons & Dragons than actually <laughs> interested in playing it. I like reading campaigns and hearing about what other people are up to. Uh, I've never quite had the attention span to do it myself. As far as stuff in the fandom, I know I don't, I'm not sure if this is what uh, James is working from, but there is a Song of Ice and Fire RPG, a Game of Thrones edition that came out, I think, like eight years ago. And I know that people used to kind of devise campaigns and systems on. Uh, I, I also know that there are like... People just do like, you know, threads in the for- in the you know World of Ice and Fire forums where they just kind of go back and forth on kind of text-based games with each other. We have people in the fandom like our friend Stephen Atwell, our friend uh, Michael A.K., Bookshelf Stud, that do their own kind of campaigns. Not necessarily Song of Ice and Fire related, but kind of their own inventive Dungeons & Dragons campaigns. And while it's not quite the same things, there's the uh, there's the Song of Ice and Fire mod for uh, Crusader Kings 2 that uh, Chloe plays and a bunch of other people have played. And yeah, you can take things in just wild, crazy histories and all these characters, you know, marry different characters and lead different fights. And yeah, that, that's that's some of the fun of the universe. So what about you, sir? What is your relationship to these kind of games? So not a nerd, so I don't play. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff can't read, folks, let alone right. be a dungeon master. Be a dungeon steps. master, no. I, uh, so I when I was a kid, I, my, my mother randomly reconnected with my father's like second cousin so i ended up hanging out with like my father's second cousin's kids and um having you know and they play dungeons and dragons and so i tr- try to play a game and uh yeah just uh just never really took with me i might have been the fault of my mother who said who had maybe read some literature which indicated that dungeons and dragons was a uh, of satanic origin i don't know if you've heard of this uh this theory that's been advanced in certain circles i'm, I'm pretty sure satan has like <laughs> cooler things to do <laughs> Yeah, but I mean that was something that kind of like turned turned me away from that one as a teenager when I probably could have like jumped into that that uh, that fan community. And so I I, I sure hope my father's second cousin's children are still playing Dungeons and Dragons now. They would probably be in their their late thirties or early forties, just about my age actually. Um, there is something interesting for those of you folks who are interested in this. There is a text based role playing game called. A, it's called a mush game. I don't know what the acronym means, but it is an acronym called Blood of the Dragon, which is something that Westeros.org hosts. And our friend Aziz from the History of Westeros podcast uh, figured something out really interesting right around the time when the World of Ice and Fire was starting to go into its final publication stages. And that there were certain events from that mush that seemed to be being pulled and being removed. And some of this information ended up in the World of Ice and Fire. So... 
for whatever it's worth. And even though this is not something that I am particularly interested in, um, although I have heard interesting things about it, I've watched, um, what's that guy, the community guy, um, the guy who wrote community, the, the show oh, back Dan in Harmon. the day. Dan Harmon has that really interesting show where he, he, he does right, Dungeons right. and Dragons role playing, which I, I, I enjoy watching that when it's when it's free. It's not often free because you have to pay money for it. Uh, but anyways, back to the main story is that a lot of these events ended up in the world of Ice and Fire and probably in Fire and Blood Volume 1 as well in certain ways and capacities. So George has some That's interest really in yeah role playing games. And uh, I, I'm, I'm probably doing injustice to the way that Aziz described because he told it in a really funny way to me several years ago. I think I want to say at Ice and Fire Con in 2017, maybe even before that. So... Always, uh, George is a, is a gamer, a uh, board game guy, as we talked about in, in our last Aria chapter, and um, he seems to be a and d guy, too. Yeah, it makes sense. You know, what is D&D but pure, pure narrative, coming up with that stuff together? And again, I love it in, in theory in the same way that I admire improv in theory, but I can't, I don't necessarily have this the mindset to engage with it myself but i love i love it when everyone else does i think that's that's wonderful so thank you so much sir james for the question if you'd like to ask us questions we must answer here on the not a cast podcast you are welcome to become a sworn sword or higher level patron over at patreon.com slash not a cast asoiaf where you can receive show notes special uh, bonus episodes like part two of the second coming our four-part analysis of the winds of winter chapter the forsaken and that's going to be coming for all poor fellow and above patrons next week if you're listening to this episode on the release day or in a couple weeks if you're uh, watching us on the live cast mm-hmm. i cannot wait to do that i was uh, as i was writing some of this stuff i'm like man i just cannot wait to like actually write the synopsis for the forsaken and uh you know because that's going to be you know a 13 or 14 thousand word <laughs> synopsis <laughs> and about a 50 thousand word depth section from emmet that we'll have to split into probably at least two parts yeah well it's, it's gonna be great it's just gonna be so good so much fun. i'm very much excited for doing that but enough about patreon when we last checked in with davos of house seaworth that is the first of the House of Seaworth. He had watched his gods burn on the Dragonstone Beach, heard the stories of Azora High and Stannis's Goshawk, 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 there it is, Stannis's Goshawk, and been charged to bring word of Stannis's kingship and Cersei's incest to the small folk. Let's find out what happens to Davos Seaworth in this synopsis of Clash of Kings, Davos 2, Part 1. Sir Courtney Penrose wore no armor. He set a sorrel stallion, his standard bearer a dapple gray. Above them flapped Baratheon's crown stag and the crossed quills of Penrose, white on a russet field. Sir Courtney's spade-shaped beard was russet as well, though he'd gone wholly bald on top. Sympathize. If the size and splendor of the king's party impressed him, it did not show on that weathered face. They trotted up with much clinking of chain and rattle of plate. Even Davos wore mail, though he could not have said why. His shoulders and lower back ached from the unaccustomed weight. It made him feel cumbered and foolish. And he wondered once more why he was here. It is not for me to question the king's commands. And yet, and yet. This is going to be another one of those synopsis things in quotation marks, synopsis, where I pretty much write where every where every part of my being just wants to quote the whole goddamn chapter from start to finish. Because, boy, this is an amazing, fantastic chapter. Anyways, end of the breach. Davos knows that everyone who is with him has a better birth and station than he does, noting their intricately crafted armor and festooned headgear. But at the very least, Stannis also looks out of place alongside of Davos with wool and boiled leather. Hello, Sean T. Collins. He does have that flame crown, though. Nope. Still not sensing any symbolism with that headgear whatsoever. Just gonna just kind of just drive on from there. Weirdly, this was the closest that Davos had been to Stannis since he'd arrived back. Davos joined Stannis' fleet off the coast of Storm's End eight days ago and immediately tried to see his king. 
but he'd been rebuffed. He was too busy. Politics, people, the worst, man. Now that Stannis Baratheon had come into his power, the lordlings buzzed around him like flies around a corpse. He looks half a corpse, too. Years older than when I left him, on Dragonstone. Devon said the king scarcely slept of late. Since Lord Renly died, he has been troubled by terrible nightmares, the boy confided to his father. Maester's, Porsche, Maester's potions do not touch him. Only the Lady Melisandre can soothe him to sleep. Is that why she shares his pavilion now, Davos wondered? To pray with him? Or does she have some other way to soothe him to sleep? It was an unworthy question, and one he dared not ask, even of his own son. Devon was a good boy, but he wore the flaming heart proudly on his doublet, and his father had seen him at the night fires as dusk fell, beseeching the Lord of Light to bring the dawn. He is the king's squire, Davos told himself. It is only to be expected that he would take the king's god. Look, Davos, the implication here is that Melisandre is singing Stannis a reloric lullaby to sleep every night. Man, I thought that Stannis was harder than that. <clears throat> Davos takes a gander at Storm's End, sees that the walls were thick and high. Thick and high, just like anyways. But before Davos, Davos has a chance to unpack that, Stannis Baratheon arrives in front of history's greatest monster, Sir Emmett, or shall I say... Sir Courtney. Sir, Stannis said with stiff courtesy. He made no move to dismount. My lord, that was less courteous, but not unexpected. Lord Alistair Florin complains that Courtney should give, should have said your grace, and Davos notices how richly attired Lord Florin is. Yet again, the Florins had been the first to turn cloak towards Stannis' side, and now that they turned cloak, now that they turned cloak, they'd also forsaken the faith of the Seven and taken on the Red God. Sir Courtney Penrose ignored him preferring to address Stannis. This is a notable company. The great lords Estermont, Errol, and Varner. Sir John of the Green Apple Fossaways, and Sir Brian of the Red. Lord Caron and Sir Giard of the King Renly's Rainbow Guard. And the puissant Lord Alistair Florence of Brightwater, to be sure. Is that your onion knight? I spy to the rear. Well met, Sir Davos. I fear I do not know the lady. I am named Melisandre, sir. She alone came unarmored, but for her flowing red robes, at her throat, the grit, the great red ruby drank the daylight. I serve your king and the lord of light. I wish you well of them, my lady, Sir Courtenay answered, but I bow to other gods and a different king. There is just one true king and one true god, announced Lord Florent. Are we here to dispute theology, my lord? Had I known, I would have brought a septon. You know full well why you've come here, said Stannis. You have had a fortnight to consider my offer. You sent your ravens. No help has come, nor will it. Storm's End stands alone, and I am out of patience. One last time, sir, I command you, open your gates, and deliver me what is mine by rights. And the terms? asked Sir Courtney. Remain as before, said Stannis. I'll pardon you for your treason, as I pardon these lords behind me. The men of your garrison will be free to enter my service, or return unmolested to their homes. You may keep your weapons and as much property as a man can carry. I will require horses and pack animals, however. And what of Edric Storm? My brother's bastard must be surrendered to me. Then my answer is still no, my lord. Stannis clenches his jaw, and Melisandre asks... <laughs> actually, I wrote the notes here that Stannis clenches his claw. and it's not That works. <laughs> he would Stanley. have claws. That works. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. And Melisandre asks that the Lord of Light protects Sir Courtney. May the others bugger your Lord of Light, Penrose spat back, and wipe his arse. With that rag you bear. Yeah, I, I had written this in the note before I actually had heard you say this, but you do that <laughs> way too well, dude. Alistair tells Courtney to watch his fucking mouth. Besides, Robert's bastard's related to his Lord Alistair too, so you can trust Dennis as you would trust an honorable- I know you for a man of ambition, 
Sir Courtenay broke in. A man who changes kings and gods the way I change my boots. As do these other turncloaks I see before me. Everyone starts getting muttering and getting angry as getting angrier than a bunch of Ohioans when they find a single speck of paprika on their boiled chicken breast. <laughs> For his part, Dallas figures that Sir Courtney isn't really wrong at all. Most of these bros had turned cloak. Lord Bryce Karen makes the case that no, 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 they hadn't turned cloak really. They just uh, were now serving the only Lord of Storm's End since Renly's very mysterious and very possibly accidental death. If that is so, why is the Knight of Flowers not among you? And where is Mathis Rowan, Randall Tarley, Lady Oakhart? Why are they not here in your company, they who loved Renly best? Where is Brienne of Tarth, I ask you? <laughs> that one, Sir Guyard Morgan laughed harshly. She ran, as well as she might. Hers was the hand that slew the king. A lie, Sir Courtney said. I knew Brienne when she was no more than a girl, playing at her father's feet in Evenfall Hall. And I knew her still better when the Evenstar sent her here to Storm's End. She loved Renly Baratheon from the first moment she laid eyes on him. A blind man could see it. Lord Florence says that Guyard's theory is fine and all, but his theory is that Catelyn did it. No, no, Lord Caron puts in. It was Brienne who did it. Sir Eben Kai was so totally telling the truth when he said so when he was dying from, um, oh, who killed him again? Who knows? Contempt thickened Sir Courtenay's voice. And what is that worth? You wear your cloak of many colors, I see. The one Renly gave you when you swore your oath to protect him. If he is dead... How is it you are not? He turned his scorn on Guyard Morrigan. I might ask the same of you, sir. Guyard the Green, yes? Of the Rainbow Guard? Sworn to give his own life for the kings? If I had such a cloak, I would be ashamed to wear it. Morrigan bristled. Be glad this is a parley, Penrose, or I would have your tongue for those words. And cast it in the same fire where you left your manhood? Enough, Stannis said. The Lord of Light willed that my brother die of treason. Who did the deed matters not. It's just a big-ass mystery, right? Stannis, very sad. Who done it? Who knows? Anyways, thoughts and prayers. Let's move on. But it does matter to Sir Courtney. I have heard your proposal, Lord Stannis. Now here is mine. He pulled off his glove and flung it full in the king's face. Single combat. Sword, lance, or any weapon you care to name. Or if you fear to hazard your magic sword and royal skin against an old man, name you a champion, and I shall do the same. He gave Giard Morgan and Bryce Karen a scathing look. Either of these pups would do nicely, I should think. So Giard and Bryce Karen all want a chance to kill Sir Courtney, but Stannis refuses them, and then Sir Courtney jumps in. Sir Courtney did not seem surprised. Is it the justice of your cause, you doubt, my lord, or the strength of your arm? Are you afraid I'll piss on your burning sword and put it out? Do you take me for another fool, sir? said Stannis. I have 20,000 men. You are besieged by land and sea. Why would I choose single combat when my eventual victory is certain? The king pointed a finger at him. I give you fair warning. If you force me to take my castle by storm, you may expect no mercy. I will hang you for traitors, every one of you. As the gods will it. Bring on your storm, my lord. And recall, if you do, the name of this castle. Sir Courtney gave a pull on his reins and rode back toward the gate. Well done, man. Likewise, sir. You have such an amazing range in terms of like vocals from... (laughs) I I fall all over the place when I come up with a voice. That's a nice way of saying it, Jeff. And wonderful Stannis, as always. I believed it was him. Oh, thank you. I very much appreciate that. And that is The Clash of Kings, Davos 2, part one. Man, does George nail most chapter openings in A Song of Ice and Fire, but tell me there's a better chapter opening than Stannis and his crew 
versus Sir Courtney Penrose. I can't because there isn't one. Like Storm's End itself, Davos II looms over a Clash of Kings, a gargantuan stone monolith constructed so smoothly and strongly by George that it seems impenetrable. But just as Davos and Melisandre managed to sneak their way underneath the castle, so we must find our way inside this incredible chapter, and it is just an embarrassment of riches. Some of George's best dialogue, some of his best imagery, some of his richest and most ambitious work in terms of politics and magic and complex characterization. It is no surprise we had to split this one into three episodes. As good as the previous chapters at Storm's End were, Catalan 3 and 4, Davos 2 takes the next step, combining both of those chapters' strengths into a single, towering whole. Not only is this my favorite chapter in the book so far, it rivals Danny 4, The House of the Undying, and Catalan 7, her dialogue with Jamie as my favorite chapter in A Clash of Kings, full stop. Mm. That's, it's hard to like really kind of like put one of those chapters above the other ones because all of those are really, really good. I just find just Davos 2 just so engrossing. And I think I've read the chapter like a dozen times in the past like week alone. And it, it's one of the reasons why I love this chapter is that in Clash throughout, and especially here in Davos 2, the reader just has this kind of ping pong effect with Stannis of House Baratheon in the story. He's kind of like a taciturn jackass to Crescent who allowed the man to be mocked before he died. Fuck that guy, right? No, wait. He's a sad guy who only is going for the Iron Throne because it's his right, because he's very sad, because Robert never loved him. Sympathize with him. He's great. No, no. He's back to being a jerk in this chapter who gets immediate villain coding given all the weasels and opportunists with him in this parlay with Sir Courtney. But it's clear that even in the first third of this chapter that George wants readers to see Stannis and Davos as distinct from the, quote, tale of traitors, as Stannis will refer to them later in the book in this actual chapter, which I love. It's also clear that George wants us to see Stannis as a half-bad onion, as both a smuggler and a hero, neither good nor bad. And this opening scene from the chapter introduces this duality through an almost entirely dialogue scene, which is somewhat rare for a chapter opening in A Song of Ice and Fire. Very true. There's no kind of, there's very little uh, mood orientation first. Or like with Catalan 3, remember how long we spent on establishing Storm's End before we got to the big dialogue scene? That's not what George is doing here. Instead, he focuses our attention on Sir Courtney Penrose, perhaps the greatest of all one-off characters in The Song of Ice and Fire, making both an immediate and lasting impact on the reader with only one scene to his name before he dies. Given how little time he gets, there's not much pretense of psychological depth. He's not an especially complicated person. He spurs <laughs> conflict in others, rather than reflecting it himself. He is here to prevent an easy resolution to that conflict. He is a fly in the ointment for both Stannis and his new followers, literally standing in between them and an open road to power, thwarting their easy narrative. He is here to insist that it matters how one comes to power. Having a solid justification for taking power is necessary, but not sufficient. If you do it wrong, you have failed. For Courtenay, the murder of Renly is an original sin that corrupts everything Stannis is doing now, a rotten foundation that hollows out the whole edifice, making it unworthy. Now, this is in part because Courtenay was just personally loyal to Renly, who left him in charge of Storm's End. But it's also a general statement about how power covers its tracks. In order to climb the fiery ladder, you wash your hands of blood but you're washing them with more blood. Renly's personal qualities really aren't relevant to this argument, because the argument isn't just about the murder, it's about St Team Stannis' subsequent cover-up of the murder. And is that the kind of conduct you want to see in your leader, however righteous their initial claim to power might be? Courtney says no, and I think it's difficult to disagree with him. 
He gets a perfect introduction that summarizes this defiant truth-to-power role. Sir Courtney Penrose wore no armor. Hmm. And why would he bother with armor? Renly's armor didn't save him, after all. By not wearing armor, Courtney calls attention to the manner of Renly's death. Purely in his visual presentation, even before he opens his mouth, he is challenging Stannis' narrative. Courtney knows he is signing his own death warrant in this scene. By not wearing armor, he communicates that he does not care. It is worth it, in his mind, to die in defiance of injustice, corruption, deceit, and murder. His doom and his defiance are therefore inextricable. Like Catelyn in the nearby Sept and Catelyn IV, he makes himself metaphorically naked before the truth, leaving behind the surface signifiers of wealth and war in favor of the real thing. Armor wouldn't protect him from Stannis' shadow sword, just like how armor dragged Lord Brax to his watery death at the Battle of the Camps. It's not a shield, it's baggage, and Courtney is leaving it behind. Yeah, you kind of get this sense of like the man standing in front of the tanks of the People's Liberation Army at Tiananmen Square Field to Courtney standing here in front of all these heavily armored knights and lords all by himself, right? I think you want to get the idea when you're looking at knights and lords who are in their finery and in their magnificent armor that this they mix them essentially impregnable to normal weapons that would be used. And there's that exception for shadow swords, of course. And it's interesting. I think, that as I was saying before, I think in the, in the pre-episode, Stannis seems very deliberately villain-coded, but Courtney is very much hero-coded. I think we get that sense here, and that he knows that all that the end of this is his death. He's going to die for Renly or Edric Storm. The problem with this is that as much as Stannis and Melisandre will state that everything has been preordained, it's all faded, all seated in the fires. Is that actually the case for Courtney? Does this knight have to die? And I really don't think so, but we're going to unpack that in this more fully as our discussion portion of this episode, but Stannis is offering fairly generous terms to Courtney's men. I know we're going to have a little disagreement. We're going to start fighting it out, duking it out, so to speak, here. Um, but, you know, Stannis carries through with this mercy, even though, uh, even after he swears to do otherwise, unless Courtney surrenders. But that's kind of post facto. Maybe Courtney thinks that Stannis is, insecure, is insincere, will break his word, and then kill him and his men anyways. But Stannis points out that most of his party with him were all on Renly's side. Not that long ago either. And now they're part of his war council and diplomatic entourage. Ultimately, I think, and you had pointed this out, is that my point is that Courtney chose to die when he really didn't have to. True. He doesn't know about Melisandre's certainty that his, his doom is guaranteed. He is choosing it. And he's choosing it, I think, because living in the world that Stannis has made is just unacceptable to him. Living in the world in which Renly died. Renly's death emphasized how we're all just flawed, frightened mortals underneath the glittering surface of power, of kingship. The songs spur us on, but they don't save us from mortality. Despite Courtenay's loyalty to Renly, he is not invested in that glittering surface because it has now passed to Stannis. Now Courtney seeks to undercut it to point out that it's just a shadow on a wall. When you ain't got nothing, you got nothing to lose. <laughs> By taking off his armor, Courtenay indicates to Stannis that unlike the lords at his back, he cannot be bribed into compliance. As George writes it, if the size and splendor of the king's party impressed him, it did not show on that weathered face. To hell with your titles, Courtney is saying. <laughs> to hell with your fancy armor. To hell with your mealy-mouthed justifications. I will peel it all away to find the truth. Hmm, that attitude sounds familiar. <laughs> Who does he sound like there? Yeah, exactly like Stannis. That is one of the many rich ambiguities and contradictions of Davos II. Stannis is essentially being defied by himself. He's being called out and mocked by his own shadow, so to speak. He's being 
called to, called to the carpet by the part of himself that hates what he's doing. Because Stannis is not a POV character, George externalizes his conflicts onto the characters around him to clue the reader into what's happening in his head. Sir Courtenay is bald, like Stannis. He is blunt and brusque, a taste for hard truths, just like Stannis. He has no taste for material wealth, like Stannis. He is a fly in the ointment for Stannis, just like Stannis is a fly in the ointment for the Lannisters. And above all, of course, Courtney Penrose is stubbornly holding Storm's End under siege despite overwhelming odds, which is exactly what Stannis did during Robert's Rebellion. That siege was the foundation of Stannis' reputation for both good and ill, and his worldview. That Robert never thanked him for it, and indeed gave the castle to Renly, stands foremost among the fraternal grievances that have produced this whole mess. Stannis is essentially doing all of this to try and fill the hole left inside him, first by Robert and then by Renly. George uses the one-off character of Courtney Penrose to show us how Stannis has only managed to dig himself deeper into that hole. By laying siege to Storm's End, Stannis is recreating the siege during Robert's Rebellion, but he has switched sides. Now he stands in for the Mad King. This perfectly fits with what's been happening in A Clash of Kings so far from Stannis' introduction forward. Stannis is so angry and sad about Robert failing to love him that he is basically trying to take back his decision to lay it all on the line for his big brother during the war. He is becoming the besieger instead. It's as if Stannis has gone back in time to change his mind. Knowing that Robert would prove unworthy of his support, he is flip sides to Team Eris, Melisandre playing Varus, as I've said before. In the process... He becomes alienated from his own younger self, as embodied by Courtenay, the one who stayed loyal to Robert. After all, Courtenay is loyal to Renly, a.k.a. young Robert. So instead of Stannis finding his hoped-for catharsis in this defiance of his brothers, he has stumbled into an even deeper level of hell. He still doesn't have their love, and now they're both dead. And the man in the mirror is telling him he's become a villain. <laughs> By killing his brother, Renly, the Lord of Storm's End, flying the Baratheon banner, Stannis set his heart on fire. His new lords are dousing that fire with water. Courtney Penrose, with his Baratheon banner, is here to spray gasoline on that fire <laughs> to force Stannis to face what he's done. Stannis is, as his lords point out, the last Baratheon, the rightful heir to Storm's End. But everything about this scene emphasizes how he, steal, how he still is on the outside, both literally and figuratively. Stannis has more in common with Courtney Penrose than he does with those former followers of Renly who are backing him now. But that commonality is exactly why Stannis and Courtney come into conflict. It's that mutual stubbornness, as with Stannis versus Renly. Neither of them can back down, because that means the other one was right. And what do we say about Stannis and Renly's relationship, or what a Tyrion rather say, is that they are too similar to actually come together and have a good relationship to each other and actually reconcile. They do have to come to blows at some point. And to kind of bolster the argument that you're making here, this is something we are going to cover again for next week for part two of three of the series on Davos 2. But Stannis and Davos have this really interesting conversation where Stannis directly challenges Davos and recognizes what Davos is feeling about Sir Courtney Penrose, where Stannis says, you esteem this Penrose more than you do my Lord's Bannerman. Why? And Davos replies, he keeps faith. Mm -hmm. Keep, keeping faith along with Stannis's somewhat meritocratic sense of justice is part of the reason why Davos holds to Stannis, after all. Stannis kept faith with Robert, valuing the older laws of blood ties over the sworn loyalty to Aerys II. And though we pointed out in our episode in the prologue that Stannis' motivation in supporting Robert 
probably wasn't based on Ares the Second Targaryen's delegitimizing conduct as the sovereign, we can see a bit of a parallel here in Courtney defying Stannis in similar lens. As you were saying, Courtney sees Stannis as committing the unforgivable sin in kinslaying Renly. Would Stannis have surrendered to Ares? Should Courtney? I mean, no to the former and yes to the prior, but you see my point, right? <laughs> Absolutely, I do. It's the, it's what makes it so tragic that Courtney and Stannis do have these things in common, but they can't get at that commonality because of the political differences, because of Stannis' backstory with Robert and now Courtney's backstory regarding what Stannis did to Renly. As such, George takes care to emphasize how different both Courtney and Stannis are from the lords now gathering around Stannis as their, no, as their new king. And really more than Stannis or Melisandre, I think these lords are the villains of this chapter. <laughs> and first and foremost among them is Lord Alistair Florent. Ugh. <laughs> I hate the Florence, and Lord Alistair is among the most singularly unlikable characters in A Song of Ice and Fire, though hardly the most reprehensible member of even his own family. He is a hypocrite to his empty core, his supercilious sanctimony constantly undercut by the grubbiness of his actions and the blindness of his worldview. All he cares about is his own comfort, yet much like Zarozo and Daxos, he spills words indulgently all over the place to pretend like he has a higher cause. And indeed, George does frame Alistair as the Westerosi equivalent of the Carthine elites. He's tall, courtly, and rich, wearing fantastically decorated armor, the glittering surface of lapis lazuli that George has said defines fantasy as a genre. Same goes for the other lords present at this parlay. Every man of the party was of better birth and higher station than Davos Seaworth. And the great lords glittered in the morning sun. Silvered steel and gold inlay brightened their armor, and their war helms were crested in a riot of silken plumes, feathers, and cunningly wrought heraldic beasts with gemstone eyes. As is the case with lesser fantasy, this exterior beauty masks an inner emptiness. There is nothing to any of these men. <laughs> they have no values worthy of the name. Again, as in Karth, beauty is not truth. Truth is not beauty. The lords wear their wealth on their bodies, not just to show off, but to distract and mollify the masses, to convince everyone that they belong on top. They look like gods. They look like they've captured the forces of nature itself and bent them to their will, hence the animal symbolism that Illyrio deconstructs in A Dance with Dragons. How could one possibly think to defy them? How could one conceive of a different arrangement of power? Just look at the shining surface. Don't think critically about it. <laughs> but the gods did not raise up Alistair Florent. Men did. The fox on his armor does not indicate that his power is the state of nature. It's a ploy on his part to make you think that. It's a shadow on a wall, the image of glory, and it didn't save Renly. All this wealth is made possible by taxing the other classes, who, unlike the nobility, have to actually work for a living. <laughs> These lords cover that up just like they're covering up Renly's death. They're no more loyal to him despite their oath than they are to the small folk they are all sworn to protect, and hence they are unworthy of their own imagery. The only worthy one is Davos, who isn't wearing all that imagery. By stripping off his armor, Courtenay is defying their deceit. This is not exactly a systemic political <laughs> critique. Courtenay is not Beric Dondarrion, literally redistributing his knightly privileges. But this is Courtenay's way of saying that the image does not comport with the reality. Alistair's splendid armor does not make him splendid. It just covers up his corruption. Shadow on a wall here, Drake. Mm -hmm. They trotted up with much clinking of chain and rattle of plate, even Davos wore mail, though he could not have said why. 
I mean, these lords and knights are projecting their power, wealth, and station to Sir Courtney. Look at me in my regal attire, attire with that helmet that with plumage that goes up into the sky. But being so fucking ostentatious in their display of power and wealth, they end up undercutting Stannis' cause altogether. There is no need for all these guys to be, as my wife sometimes says, quote, dressed to the nines. They're doing so because... One, they are very much compensating for their former support for Renly. Two, they're probably a little scared given all the blood magic which seems to be about this area. And three, as I was saying before, they're attempting to show how overwhelmingly powerful they are. The problem is that they can't scare Courtney, and the entire effect results in a complete fucking farce. And we get this from Davos, and we learn immediately why it's a farce. Davos had forgotten how high and thick the walls of Storm's End loomed up close. The walls of Storm's End, that's Courtney's armor. He doesn't need to pretend to be powerful when he's at the foreground of a castle that's never been taken by force of arms. And as much shade as I'm throwing on Stannis and his party here, at least the king recognizes the silliness these lords are exhibiting in their display. As Davos says, or thinks, like Davos, the king was plainly garbed in wool and boiled leather. And we're just going to forget about the crown here for momentarily, but I'm sure someone else will bring it up here momentarily too. <laughs> no, that's a great point. I love your point about the castle itself being Courtney's armor. That's exactly right. I mean, that's that's uh, so perfectly expressed in his final line. And yes, there is that, that connection of, of non-materialism, of lack of overt displays of wealth that connects Courtney to Stannis to Davos. And then you have on the other side of that line, all the other lords who are showing off their wealth and showing off how much they have. And especially Alistair Florent, who immediately gets all petty about how Courtney addresses the situation, insisting that there is only one true king, Stannis, and only one true god, R'hllor. Alistair speaks as though he has been a diehard Stannis loyalist from the very beginning, as if these are the ironclad values that make him who he is. <laughs> and no doubt, he talked about Renly and the Seven in the same way, like a couple weeks ago. Alistair's only core belief is that whatever side he's on is the right one by virtue of him belonging to it. It's the inverse of, I would never want to belong to any club that would have me as a member. <laughs> Moral righteousness is just an inherent feature of being Lord Alistair Florent, according to Lord Alistair Florent. As such, he doesn't even appear to recognize the base hypocrisy of his statements. What he's saying here is as true to him now as the opposite was a month ago. Again, it's all surface. Alistair flaunts external beauty as though it speaks to inner beauty without doing any of the hard work, self-awareness, self-sacrifice required for inner beauty. Courtney shows us what real loyalty looks like, and so he cannot abide Alistair, and Alistair cannot abide him. They have irreconcilable ways of looking at the world and themselves. Courtney mocks how notable the company is, sarcastically referring to Alistair as puissant. You'd like to think of yourselves that way, but I know better and will say so to your face. And who is it that commits treason? Yeah, it's Lord Alistair. And he's not the first lord to actually betray Stannis. But he is the first one to do so who does not have the threat of immediate violence if he doesn't actually switch sides right here, right now. Exactly. Alistair just takes advantage to try to climb the ladder after the Blackwater by selling out Stannis to Tywin. So where is Stannis himself in the midst of all this? The one true king with his one true god having finally come into his power. I mean, this is what he's wanted all along, right? The powerful lords who loved his brothers more than him have finally bent the knee and given him a big army. Yet look at how George describes what ought to be Stannis' apotheosis. Now that Stannis Baratheon had come into his power, 
The lordlings buzzed around him like flies around a corpse. He looks half a corpse, too, years older than when I left Dragonstone. In turning Renly into a literal corpse, Stannis has transformed himself into a figurative corpse. He is dead on the inside. He has set his heart on fire. So much for apotheosis. Turns out that a crown is cold compared to the warmth of a brother's smile. Turns out that power is not an adequate replacement for love. Turns out there is no victory to be had here. These splendid, well-spoken lords are framed as so many flies buzzing around a corpse, feasting crows, taking advantage of the corrupted nature of power. What will it profit a man to gain the world and lose his soul? Stannis got everything he thought he ever wanted, but in the process, gave up what he actually wanted. Be careful what you wish for. He can keep that hideous realization tamped down, compartmentalized away in his nightmares, as long as no one points it out to his face in the daylight. But Courtney Penrose is doing exactly that. Stannis wants to close the door on what happened, but the ambiguous nature of what happened is precisely what makes it impossible to close the door. There can be no catharsis because it has not been established who killed Renly Baratheon. You can see Stannis trying to put his best foot forward in this scene. He is giving Courtney one last chance to save his life and the lives of his men. He ignores Courtney calling him my lord, Alistair is the one who objects to that, and Stannis offers what seems on the face of it to be generous terms. I will pardon you for your treason, as I have pardoned these lords you see behind me. The men of your garrison will be free to enter my service or to return unmolested to their homes. You may keep your weapons and as much property as a man can carry. I will require your horses and pack animals, however. So Stannis is not an unreasonable man, obsessed with punishment and his own rights in this moment. But Courtney still refuses. Why? Because of Edric Storm, the next Robert the next Renly, the next perfect laughing storm who was everything Stannis could never be. What Stannis did to get here, the way in which he put himself in the position to even be able to make this generous offer to Courtenay, that is precisely why Courtenay cannot accept. Stannis points out that the hard logistical facts on the ground all point against Courtenay. They are outnumbered. They have no allies. If Stannis attacks, he will eventually inevitably win. Courtney's refusal does not guarantee Edric's safety. Edric will arguably be more in danger from a battle if Stannis has to attack by force. Moreover, Courtney's putting the lives of all his men at risk. Stannis says he will let them go home if they surrender. Courtney's refusal could mean they all die in battle. Catelyn argued in her uh, most recent chapter that Brienne devoting herself to vengeance against Stannis was a waste of all the good things she could still do with her life. Does that same logic not apply here? Is Courtney not just throwing everything away for vengeance? I think that same logic does apply, but that logic has to be tempered with context. Courtney's better options refused his call, and he does not believe that Stannis is acting in good faith. That's not to say that Courtney directly accuses Stannis of killing Renly. He doesn't. He seems to realize he has no direct evidence on which to found such an accusation. However, his belief that Stannis probably did give the order is clearly motivating both his attitude and his actions. If Stannis killed Renly, why should Courtney entrust Edric Storm to him? More to the point, how can he trust Stannis at all? How can he trust any of those terms? Why would a kinslayer honor a promise? How does Courtney know that his men won't be killed after they surrender? That corrosive lack of trust is why he doesn't believe Alistair's reassurances about Edric. The whole system is going down. Honor and ambition, in Courtney's framing, are irreconcilable opposites. There is an irony there in that he could be describing Renly every bit as much as these lords who flocked to Renly's banners. 
As Davos thinks to himself, Corden is right about these former allies of his, these lords who used to serve Renly and now serve Stannis. Neither gods nor kings mean anything to them, only power, by whatever means they can grasp it. Yeah, I think it's a really good point. I think you, you brought this up, we were talking about our Catelyn chapters, how the entire dynamic of Westeros has changed. Like you have that last gasp of air before all kind of goes to pot, that parlay between these two men is the last moment where Westeros can return to some sort of normalcy, sort of normalcy, not an actual normalcy, but it's a sort of it. But it's all been gone. It's all been done away with the use of the Shadow Baby or the battle. If it, the Shadow Baby had not been used, the battle that would have ensued would have done the same, had the same effect. Now, I think you can see some of the reason why Stannis chose to bring former Renly loyalists with him instead of, say, Lords Adrian Keltigar or Monford Valarian. Stannis is trying to undercut Courtney's argument before he even starts. See, I spared these traitorous assholes and they really, really suck. It's a good optics framework for the negotiation. The problem is something that you're highlighting is that Stannis comes across as how Stannis comes across and his reputation as Catelyn puts it of being, quote, notoriously without mercy. And it's also the very party you rise with. I mean, besides Davos, these jabronis don't come off as anything more than grasping and amb- ambitious bootlickers. Stannis has pardoned them, forgiven them, but he still thinks they're traitorous scum. It's a sentiment that Courtney shares. Ding! Another way that Stannis and Courtney are alike. As always, Stannis comes striding to most scenes seemingly with good intentions. I think something that's interesting is why he comes at all, and we'll maybe unpack that a little bit more. But it's interesting because, as he says to Davos later in this chapter, he has seen Courtney dead in the flames, or rather Melisandre has seen Courtney dead in the flames. So why is Stannis even coming here at the in the first place? Seemingly, he's coming here because he's hoping to forestall prophecy and destiny and hoping to save this guy's life. He doesn't seem to be here to kill Cordy, at least here. But he brings his baggage with him. That is all of that notoriously without mercy stuff. And the execution of his good intentions inevitably falls to pieces. Still, it seems clear that whatever Stannis's or the party brings priors, Cordy isn't really coming to this parlay with any intention of negotiating the surrender of Storm's End. At least that's the impression that I get from this, the opening of this chapter. He really feels like he can't trust people who are just so thoroughly committed to power at any cost. Renly was the same way, of course. He only appeared to be different, enough to inspire devotion in Courtney Penrose. And for Courtney, that devotion is really what makes him different. Renly having no claim and being rather power-hungry himself isn't really the point for Courtney. It's that he, Courtney, picked a side and stuck to it. And these turncloaks didn't. Naturally, these lords don't take kindly to being called turncloaks. <laughs> Bryce Karen comes forward to defend their honor, but his cloak is literally twisting in the wind. That's George showing you that, that Courtney <laughs> is right in his criticisms of these folks. Bryce's argument is both sensible and ridiculous, fitting the complexity and ambiguity of this chapter. On the one hand, he is right that Stannis is, now, the last Baratheon standing. As such, it's only to be expected that the nobility of the Stormlands would line up behind Stannis now. Courtney counters by pointing out that Loras, Randall, Mathis, etc. aren't here. But that's not really a relevant response, because they're not Stormlanders. Unlike Bryce Karen, their fealty was never to Storm's End. It was to Highgarden. The Tyrells of Highgarden are committed foes of Stannis Baratheon, and vice versa, so of course those guys aren't here. No, but there is something that's interesting, though, is that there's a curious presence and among Stannis' party, and it's Sir John Fossaway. So... A little bit of backstory. Sir John Fossaway of the of the New Barrel is a knight from the Reach, formerly sworn to Renly, but now he's here in Stannis's party, possibly to show that kind of the quote inner regional aspect of Stannis's forgiveness and new army. 
and if you can allow me just a small digression, I promise we'll get right back to your excellent points. Between the publication of A Game of Thrones and A Clash of Kings, George R. R. Martin published The Hedge Knight, which is the first of the Duncan Egg novels. Have you heard of it? Good series of books if you've, read, if you've not read those, those, those stories yet. And this features the character of Raymond Fosway, who was knighted by Lionel Baratheon to fight for Dunk at the Trial of Seven at Ashford Meadows. This was, of course, in contrast to his traitorous cousin, Stefan Fosway, who fought for Arian Brightflame. This is where House Fosway of the New Barrow actually originated from, as George later said. And having Sir John Fosway here as a knight is a neat way that George integrated some of his novella work into the main series. Anyways, I'm not, I digress. Continue on with your excellent points. <laughs> no, no, no. That's, that's a very good point to bring up. There's a lot of complex politics at work here. So, so, so Bryce's argument does have some logic to it. On the other hand, like Alistair, he is desperately trying to pretend that this is always what he thought. These were always his beliefs when they clearly weren't. If Stannis is Robert's rightful heir, why wasn't Bryce behind him from the start? Why did he ever don that rainbow cloak for Renly? For power and glory, of course, his true values. Referring to Stannis as Renly's heir regarding Storm's End is another fig leaf. Can you still claim an inheritance if you had to murder the current occupant to lay claim to it? Well, maybe if everyone agrees that that's what you're doing, but all these lords are trying to dance around the base reality of that. <laughs> This contradiction is what Courtenay is getting at when he wonders why those who loved Renly best are not here. If this is just naturally proceeding from Renly, why isn't the core of Team Renly present? Those who, like Courtenay, loved Renly as Renly are not interested in the fig leaf of stepping neatly to Stannis' side and pretending that nothing happened. It all comes together with Courtenay's passionate demand to know what happened to Brienne. Unlike Loras, Mathis, and Randall, Brienne is a native Stormlander. Her family is sworn to Storm's End and House Baratheon. It makes political sense for her to be serving Stannis now that Renly is dead. If she is not here, Courtenay is arguing, then the clear consensus Bryce Karen is describing is a lie. It does not actually exist. Bryce and Giard Morgan argue that it was Brienne who killed Renly. That's why she's not here. Alistair thinks it was Catelyn, but he still gets in this, like, this misogynistic little dig at Brienne. Brienne was Renly's truest servant the shining star in his camp like Davos is in Stannis' camp. And just as Stannis' noble-born vassals reject Davos, Renly's former lord scorned Brienne. She was genuinely loyal, and so out of place among these ambitious turncloaks. Courtenay knows better. Brienne believed in Renly. She believes in devotion and love. So too does Courtney Penrose. That's why he's putting it all on the line for Edric Storm. Bryce and Giard and Alistair Florent are telling themselves that there is a logic, an ethos to their actions. And this disgusts Courtney. They don't even have honesty of purpose. They can't even authentically be their own selfish, ambitious selves. They play at honor. It turns out that for so many of the powerful people in Westeros, honor is a performance. It's something you convince others you have, not something you actually have to possess yourself. <laughs> if these lords had wrote up here and said, look, Courtney, we loved Renly's too. We love Renly too, but he's dead, and we don't feel like losing everything. So King Stannis, it is. I think Courtney would still resist them to his last breath, but I don't think he would feel such blazing contempt for them. They're so inauthentic, <laughs> and that inauthenticity is rooted in Renly's death, which the Turncloak lords are treating as a given, an unfortunate memory to move past. For Courtney, though, this is still very much an open case because it has not been decided who did it. How dare these men swear oaths to him that they will keep Edric safe, that it was Brienne who killed Renly, when they failed to uphold their oaths to Renly? What good is their word after that failure on their parts? Why should he trust them on any subject? Now again, I think Courtney's emotionally convincing arguments must be tempered with logistical realities. Bryce and Guillard could not possibly have saved Renly's life. 
But that's not really Courtenay's point. Just like the question of whether or not Stannis is the rightful heir to Storm's End isn't really relevant to his argument. <laughs> I mean, it's also like, if you think about it, just it's hilarious imagining Stannis' internal reaction to Bryce Karen telling everyone that Stannis is now the heir to Storm's End after Renly's death. He is the rightful lord these days. And if you guys recall from one of Earl, from the prologue, one of Stannis' earliest and most frequent complaints is that Robert gave Renly Storm's End when it was his by rights. And you start to see why Stannis dismisses them as, quote, chattering magpies later in this chapter. They're reinforcing his insecurities about whether Robert loved him or not. They're in this fight. They're in this fight because they have to be. That's their stated reason now. And I sympathize, I guess, with Stannis in, in as much as he shares Cordy's disdain for them. But why would he like them when Bryce Karen is here loudly proclaiming that they're following Stannis now only because Renly died? Who did it after all? Who knows? And that's Courtney's point. It's not really so much that, you know, Renly really was the best guy ever. That's not really what Courtney spends any time talking about here. Courtney's point is that it's utterly fucking galling <laughs> to see these men prancing around like their shit doesn't stink, wearing the cloaks Renly gave them while supporting his killer. That's his point. As Courtney says to Guillard, he considers them all to be less than men. As a result, they have sacrificed their humanity in the name of power, a pack of corrupt cowards and liars. Stannis weighs in at this point with a line that exposes the fragility of his rise to power. The Lord of Light willed that my brother die for his treason. Who did the deed matters not. First of all, it is highly unwise for Stannis to cite R'hllor's will as driving everything. Even those of his followers who, embraced, who have embraced the Red God have only done so in a superficial fashion. We see in this chapter and again in A Storm of Swords that instinctively they all still refer to the gods, plural, the faith of the seven in which they were raised. As Courtney points out, they are not here to debate theology. This religious conversion is just another fig leaf being used to cover up the base brutality of Renly's murder. When Melisandre presses the point, asking the Lord of Light to bless Courtney in his darkness and bring him to the one true God and one true king, Courtney snaps back, May the others bugger your Lord of Light and wipe his arse with that rag you bear. This is crucial. This shouldn't be overlooked. Since the very beginning of this podcast, we've been talking about the White Walkers as monsters on the margins. Our knowledge that winter is coming infects our perspective on the more secular struggles. It doesn't make them unimportant, far from it, as the outcome of the secular struggles will determine what the response can even be to the supernatural struggle. But by starting with the others before shifting to the war, George communicates, as he has said explicitly in interviews before, that they are the most dire threat, and the best outcome would be humanity uniting against them. And that's not going to happen. How do I know that's not going to happen? Because here we have Courtney Penrose welcoming the others if it means taking down Team Stannis. Now, I don't think he would literally prefer the White Walkers, but the point is that the human passions of the war have run so hot that in this moment, he feels like he would prefer them. I am confident that this is what George is trying to say because he pulled the same trick with Theon and Benford Tallhart back in Theon 3. The others bugger your wet god. Ultimately, we hate and fear the mysterious, unknowable eldritch demons <laughs> less than we hate and fear each other. Hmm. Melisandre thinks of herself and her god as the solution to the others. Summer defeats winter. Fire melts ice. We have to win this piddling little war in order to win the Great War. But as we see with Courtney Penrose, Melisandre is sabotaging her own efforts. Everything she does to win the secular war makes her side weaker, not stronger, 
in face of the supernatural threat. She makes it harder, not easier, for everyone to unite as one. The same thing is going to go down with the wildlings in the north. Melisandre makes it harder for them to come together, not easier. What if the others are actually the solution to her and R'hllor? Now again, I don't think that's literally true. That's not going to be the big twist at the end of the series, that the others are here to save us from the Red God. But George is framing it that way in this scene for a reason, to challenge our easy binary narratives along with Melisandre's. What if neither fire nor ice is good? Or rather, what if it is bad for either side to triumph completely? A long summer would be just as bad as a long winter, ultimately. What is needed is balance, and that is something Melisandre just refuses to accept. 100% accurate, man. Exactly. I mean, a theme of this chapter, one of several themes as we'll unpack in all of these parts, is that extreme duality versus balance. Are you a good man, Sir Davos? Well, Davos is kind to his wife, but has known other women. He's kind of in the middle. The consuming fire of Red Berlore versus the watery halls of the Drowned God versus the cold death the others bring results in one thing, death. It's like George took that old schoolyard question, how would you rather die? Burn to death? Drown to death? Freeze to death? And gave these questions thematic weight in this chapter, as well as in Theon's third chapter. On a lesser ethereal level, I do think another way that George writes profanity into A Song of Ice and Fire and that kind of dialect he does is really, really fascinating. You've, we've heard this several times before. Robert Bradley say this all the time. The others take you. Or Sir Courtney in this chapter says, the others bugger your red god. It's kind of like the Song of Ice and Fire equivalent of God damn you or go to hell. And in George's world, these are everyday curses that everyone hurls at each other. Same as in our world, in some cases. But in a horrifying twist, there's real meaning to these curses. The others are coming to take you. The others are going to come and bugger your red god if they get the chance. I mean, just imagine it from in a modern context. Imagine if saying God damn it or go to hell resulted in God damning the thing or person or sending someone directly to hell. That would be terrifying. And that's the dynamic that I think George wants us to keep in the back of our minds when all these curses just kind of tossed around casually. It's really, really good writing. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, it's not that Courtney is, is literally saying, I know that the White Walkers exist and I wish they were here, Stannis, so they could take you down. That, But I think that irony is supposed to be there for the reader. We're supposed to go, oh... That's how bad things have gotten in the war, that that's how this framework is coming together. And that's why it's just not going to be as simple as Melisandre thinks to get everyone together against the others. She is getting in her own way. Even beyond the religious considerations, however, Stannis' declaration that who did the deed matters not is politically untenable, revealing his own hypocrisy. You cannot say that you are the one true king, the font of justice, the ultimate authority on who deserves to die and who doesn't, and then say, eh, who cares who killed Renly? What does it matter? <laughs> if Stannis was to sincerely act on his stated beliefs, he would be more concerned than anyone with the question of who killed Renly, because that person is a traitor too. Whoever that person is, they took on Stannis' powers and duties with no legal right to do so. They made themselves judge, jury, and executioner of Renly. That's Stannis' job. I think you can really see how hypocritical Stannis is being in this scene if you compare his reaction to Renly's death to his reaction to the Mad King's death. Robert makes this same who-did-the-deed-matters-not argument regarding his predecessor. Someone had to kill Aerys, as he tells Ned, and he doesn't care that it was Jaime. But Ned does, because even though Aerys murdered his father and brother, he believes that Jaime's sword tainted Robert's rebellion, because Jaime was a Kingsguard. Aerys might no longer have been the rightful king in Ned's eyes, but Jaime had still sworn an oath to him and broke that oath. Brienne feels the same way. 
Eris was mad and cruel. No one has ever denied that. He was still king, crowned and anointed, and you had sworn to protect him. Now, of course, Ned and Brienne, at that point, don't know about the wildfire. They're working with limited information. And with that same, inf with that same information, Stannis agrees with them. After all, while Stannis rebelled against the Mad King, he still tells Davos in A Storm of Swords that Jaime should have been sent to the Wall afterwards. Why? Stannis clearly believed that Aerys had to go. Drawing from the logic he uses in this scene, why does it matter who, who killed them? The rebellion decreed that Aerys had to die for his crimes. Who did the <laughs> deed matters not. Shouldn't that be his mindset? So something has clearly changed. Something does not add up. Somehow Renly's death is different from Aerys' death, to Stannis in such a way that, in this case, who did the deed matters not. Why is that? Why does Stannis, for once in his life, decide not to judge the guilty? Because in this case, the guilty party is himself. We'll get more into this debate next week, but Stannis' statement here is so incongruous with the rest of his beliefs that I can only interpret it as a desperate attempt to dodge culpability in Renly's death. Just like how his new lords are feigning belief in the Red God in order to fit in politically, Stannis is using R'hllor's will as a fig leaf to avoid dealing with his own will. I certainly didn't kill my brother and I'm now regretting it. No, 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 no. I didn't set my heart on fire. God did that. I can externalize all my pain and confusion onto R'hllor. Isn't that convenient? <laughs> Renly's death was supposed to pave the way for Stannis's iron justice. But in the wake of Renly's death... He is already abandoning that iron justice, lest it toll for him. It's a really good point. I think um, when we look at Stannis saying that it was R'hllor's will, is, is Stannis actually a believer in R'hllor at this point in the story? Again, it's really hard to say whether Stannis actually believes that such a thing as the Red God exists. He believes in the power that Melisandre has. He sees that the Red Hawk has power, and he's trying this new hawk to see how it works out for him. But now he's externalizing potentially his own guilt onto God. God did it. However, you are forcing, forcing me to be contrarian here. <laughs> forcing. I'm joking. As I was saying before, these are all really, really good points. And I think bringing Stannis' statement about what Robert should have done, would have done with Red, with Jamie is good analysis and what Stannis should have done. And I look forward to that alternative universe we'll unpack in our five-part series on Davos's fourth chapter in the Storm of Swords about what Stannis would have done with Jaime had he known about the wildfire. But so much of this chapter revolves around what someone knew and when did they know it, as we're going to talk at substantive length next week. Stannis, as you were saying, very clearly wants to move on from Menly's death. Who did it? As quickly as possible. There's a part of me that does think that had Stannis owned Renly's death, he might have garnered more reader sympathy here. Something along the, along the lines of Samuel Jackson's, yes, he deserved to die and I hope he burns in seven hells from a, from a time to kill. Great movie from the 90s. The issue is that he's haunted by Renly's death personally and knows he bears responsibility. How much responsibility? Again, tune in next week. The other issue is that if Stannis just straight up admitted that he had killed Renly for treason even after giving him the chance to renounce his treason, he would have been a curse as a kinslayer. And really, which lord of Westeros or knight of Westeros wants to be associated with someone who breaks a societal taboo that almost all of Westeros holds sacred? Most of these jackanapes know that they would share in the kinslaying dishonor if Stannis's culpability was widely known. And Stannis knows that they know. And he seems to know that they have to buy into the lie that it doesn't matter who killed Renly because they'd show themselves to be giving assent to the greatest sin in Westeros, Kinsley. 
again, it's arguably whether kinslaying or guest writers, violating guest writers is the greatest taboo. But for the sake of argument, we'll just say it, that kinslaying right now. Again, as we uncovered at significant length in Catelyn's third and fourth chapters, the hypocrisy of this taboo is that it didn't extend to Renly, again, commanding Stannis' death on the battlefield at dawn the next day. How many degrees of separation from swinging the sword or shadow sword does kinslaying become a culturally appropriate? That's my question. Now, you're highlighting something else that, I, that I'm kind of papering over here, that Stannis feels guilt over Renly's death and that'll hang emotionally over him forever. For that matter, the justice or injustice of what Stannis and Melisandre did doesn't exculpate him emotionally from the fact that he was there at some level when Renly very sadly passed away. But in seriousness, the, the blood is ultimately on Stannis' hands or head for, I guess I've been saying this a lot, reasons we're going to unpack next week. <laughs> well, yeah, obviously so much of this scene flows into the next one. And you make a point that our, our friend Frank that we had on for the first Davos chapter has talked about that, you know, really, you know, Renly was preparing to kill Stannis too. So doesn't this count as self-defense? And I think that is true. I think there's a couple factors there. One is that Renly was preparing to kill Stannis in battle. And that distinction might not matter to us, but it very definitely matters to people in universe. And the other distinction is, is that Stannis, as you say, just isn't admitting it. And, you know, there's, there's a kind of a contradiction there. If, you know, if it, if it really wasn't a big deal, if he didn't com complete, if he didn't uh, commit the taboo, well, then why isn't he talking about it? Why is everyone experiencing such shame and hiddenness about it? Because I think it, it, in, in universe, at least, it does fit the sense of the taboo. And I think, like you say, everyone has an incentive to, to try to move on from that. Mm-hmm. Like Courtney, like Davos, Stannis eschews the self-indulgent trappings of wealth that define his new followers. I do think this makes him more likable than them, but there is still that one trapping of power he keeps. A crown. Just like how Danny holds on to her new crown in Karth when she gives up all other signifiers of wealth and power. The Stannis-Danny parallels will just keep on piling up as we go. Stannis' crown is made of red gold, with points shaped like flames. A fiery ladder from which he will fall, as he himself prophesies in a storm of swords. And Courtney starts dragging him down here and now. Courtney throws his glove in Stannis' face and demands single combat. Put your money where your mouth is. Risk your sacred kingly body as you destroyed Renly's. Stannis' turncloak lords are eager to duel Courtney because they really, really don't like being called out on what <laughs> selfish hypocrites they are. So they want to kill him. What heroes. Stannis refuses on logistical grounds. Do you take me for an utter fool, sir? Why risk losing the castle on a single combat when if he attacks, his victory is certain? Why should he accept this offer? Well, for the same reason Courtney should surrender. To save lives. To spare the lives of the other men inside those walls who really had no say in any of this. Both men have a responsibility to avoid an unnecessary battle. But Stannis is pretending like only Courtney has that responsibility. He says that he will kill every man of them if they force him to take the castle by storm. But no one is forcing him to do anything. Just as Stannis dodges responsibility for Renly's death by hiding behind the will of the Lord of Light, he dodges responsibility for all those potential deaths by blaming Courtney. Even if you are inclined to argue that Stannis needs to take Storm's End lest his reputation suffer, as we will discuss more in later episodes, <laughs> there is no cause that requires him to hang all those soldiers after defeating them in battle after they presumably surrendered to him. That's an atrocity. Courtney leaves it all in the hands of the gods. Plural. One more dig at the intolerant zealotry of Melisandre's faith. And he leaves the scene and the story and his life behind with one more great line. Bring on your storm, my lord, and recall, if you do, the name of this castle. Sick burn. 
With one <laughs> fell swoop, Courtney has severed Stannis from his own backstory and his own family. He is an outsider, permanently, who has forgotten the name of his own home and must be reminded of it. He is the storm, no longer the storm's end. He has turned on a version of himself holding the castle under siege. He has become the vengeful wind of the gods sweeping off the bay, as in Duran God's grief's time. He has set his heart on fire, alienating himself from his own family home, the cradle of his birth, even as he seeks to lay claim to it. Stannis' victories turn to ash in his mouth, and when he gets inside that castle, he will set the godswood on fire too. Courtney Penrose is wrong that Stannis' storm will end here. Courtney will be swept aside just as Renly was. But just as Renly's peach returns to haunt Stannis' dreams, so too does Courtney's final line linger as a condemnation of everything Stannis will lose on the way to his crown. So, remember Davos? <laughs> Our POV character for the chapter? We have barely talked about him at all. He is not as prominent in this part of the chapter as he will be in later ones. So as you guys might know, uh, recently I've been reviewing a lot of old George R. R. Martin interviews and right around the time that A Dance of Dragons was released, he said that he chooses point of views that won't simply be a camera for a scene, but will have their own will viewpoint and add something to the chapters that they point of view and add something to the story overall. Davos kind of though spends the first third to 20% to a third of this chapter almost as a camera for the action. But I want to argue that there's an in-universe reason he's there, he's here, beyond cameraing this exchange. As Davos relates later in this chapter, he visited Courtney Penrose's father and was received more kindly than most of the other lords he encountered. So that's part of why Stannis brought Davos along. Hey, bring along someone that Courtney might like. His dad liked him anyhow. And hey, when Courtney sees Davos, he says, well met, Sir Davos Seaworth. So... Seemingly, Courtney does not have the ill feelings towards Davos that he has for these other lords that are surrounding Stannis. But I think the bigger reason why Davos is here in this particular exchange is that he's yet another example of Stannis's mercy in that Stannis elevated him to knighthood in exchange for saving him and his garrison at Storm's End by bringing in the fish and salt that he brought with him. And of course, took off half his fingers for the smuggling. Always that duality with Stannis of House Baratheon. As we've said before, Davos doesn't really become a fully-fledged psychology on the page in his own right until A Storm of Swords. In this scene, he is serving a similar role to Courtney Penrose, bringing Stannis' internal conflicts to the surface by standing in for them. Davos' absence since Dragonstone, the fact that we're over halfway through A Clash of Kings before he gets even a second chapter, in part reflects this sketchy-so-far characterization. George just doesn't have a lot in mind for Davos yet. But it also reflects how, in both books and show, Stannis feels the need to send Davos away. When he is considering something, he knows Davos would not approve of. Davos' status as Stannis' conscience is not just a literary conceit for the reader to enjoy, it is something that Stannis, in-universe, is clearly aware of. And so he relies on Davos when he's trying to do the right thing, and he ignores Davos when he is tempted into doing the wrong thing. So while Davos was out being the best in Stannis, spreading the truth, bringing the word of Stannis' claim to his fellow small folk, Stannis was here, committing himself to fraternal conflict, intolerant religion, and a swarm of turncloak lords who rejected him when he needed them. Under the surface of Davos' mindset in this chapter is an awareness that he came too late to prevent Stannis from selling his soul. All he can do is pick up the pieces. He will try and do so in our next episode. In this chunk of the chapter, he mostly just feels out of place, wondering why it is that the king wanted him here at all. 
As we said in our episodes on Davos 1 with our good buddy Frank Bum, Davos perpetually feels out of context, knowing that he doesn't belong with all these rich, well-spoken lords. Davos's alienation, however, should not be mistaken for apathy. He has been trying to get an audience with Stannis ever since he turned up at Storm's End, but has been denied. Why? Well, again, I think this is because Stannis knows Davos would reject the decision Stannis has made, and will go on making. And Stannis knows at some level that Davos would be right to reject those decisions. <laughs> so instead, Stannis has invested his intimacy with Melisandre. Davos learns this from his son Devon, one of the king's squires, who wears the fiery hearts proudly over his own. Because of that sigil, Davos dare not share his doubts with the kid. Such are the wages of intolerant faith. The family unit is set against itself, as with Stannis versus Renly. Davos fears his own son would turn him into Melisandre, as children under despotic regimes in our own history have been encouraged to turn in their parents. Yet even as the political power of R'hllor in Westeros is established, Devon's report to his father hints at the weaknesses, the, the thin wages that will rob them of true victory. Stannis has been afflicted with terrible nightmares since Renly died. Now, as first-time readers, the only information we have to work with about Renly's death is that Catelyn felt Stannis' presence in the tent. We don't know anything about the mechanisms of the Shadow Assassins. We don't know that there could be another one. We don't know about Melisandre's involvement. And we don't know how aware of it Stannis actually was or is. But these nightmares are a clue to Stannis' guilt. Despite gaining his army at last, he cannot be at peace. Maester's potions, the tools of Maester Cresson, the, the man who raised him, the secular world, they cannot help him. Stannis has committed himself to sorcery, so the secular world is no relief. Only Melisandre can soothe him, though the manner by which she does so is left ambiguous here. For the first time reader, this is the first time the question of whether Stannis is sleeping with Melisandre has been broached. It's been shown directly on the show by this point. And this is another setup, another important setup for the reveal that the shadows not only are Stannis at some level, but at another level, they are also his children. This skin-crawling intimation of mystery and torment, as well as the possibility that Stannis is committing adultery, is designed to reduce reader sympathy for Stannis. Davos, our POV, is trying to hold on to his loyalty to Stannis in face of these warning signs. It's hard for him to do so, in large part because of his king's new followers. When Courtney calls them all out as ambitious turncloaks with no loyalty to, any, no loyalty to anything save themselves, Davos internally agrees— but he agrees from the perspective of a Stannis loyalist rather than a jilted Renly loyalist. <laughs> Courtney rejects these men because they used to be pro-Renly. Davos rejects them because they used to be anti-Stannis. And that is a fine distinction, perhaps, but I think it's an important one. Like, Davos can't help but imagine these men in Renly's tent making plans to bring Stannis down. It's not, that, not just that they refused Stannis' call, it's that they were prepared to destroy him. That's not really why Courtney hates them. He hates them because they used to love Renly and now don't. <laughs> so Courtney and Davos, despite being on opposite sides of the war, they share the classic partisan's disdain for the fair-weather follower with no true loyalty to either side and so an enemy of the loyal people on both sides. And that is why, yeah, Courtney calls out respectfully to the Onion Knight. Well met, Sir Davos. I mean, I think Courtney would think to himself, I, Davos, I get why you're here. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, you, you have good reason to serve Stannis. You, know, you have good reason to be loyal to him, unlike the rest of these assholes. And as we'll get into next week, this is also why Davos respects Courtney more than the rest of Renly's lords who have joined Stannis. The doubt Davos is experiencing 
is a shadow of the doubt Stannis is experiencing, and so Stannis will call Davos forth to act as his conscience next time on the Nauticast. <laughs> I cannot wait for the next time, but yeah, it, it's it's so... It speaks to the overall tragedy, I think, of Stannis's story in A Song of Ice and Fire, that despite his best intentions, that despite seemingly wanting to preserve innocent life here, at some level, he it always blows up in his face because he can't master the simple politicking of politics. He can't bring people that would actually do the job of impressing Sir Courtney Penrose to his service, besides Sir Davos. And you can see why Stannis brought these guys with him. You can see why he has them speak and in order to vouch for him. But you can see why it also just completely blows up in his face. These guys are all villain coding Stannis because they themselves are actual villains in the story. Mm-hmm. Whereas Stannis is probably somewhere in the middle. Perfectly said. Exactly. That, you know, you have Stannis in the middle of a figure of ambiguity and duality, and then you kind of explode outward from him, and you have more clearly villain-coded guys like these other lords and more hero-coded folks like Davos. And that's that's the structure of it, and it's great. Mm-hmm. So, to shift on to foreshadowing and groundwork, there's not a lot to work with here as compared to the later sections of the episode. But one big one I think that stands out for a rereader is that George must have loved this scene so much that he basically rewrote it in A Feast for Crows <laughs> between Jamie and the Blackfish at River Run. It's, the, it's really like the same scene. You have a yeah. siege in the wake of a murdered king, Renly in this case, Robin of Feast for Crows. You have uh, the noose around a hostage's neck, which is proposed here, as we'll get into next week, and is carried out at River Run with Edmure. You have intense hostility from the besieged commander, Courtney Penrose here, the Blackfish at River Run. And then you have the, the heroism of that commander is checked by the uselessness of their defiance. Because in both Courtney's case and the Blackfish's case, you're thinking, yeah, you know, you, I understand why you're so pissed off. Your dialogue is awesome. You're, you're speaking truth to power. But aren't you ultimately just getting your men killed? So I think, you know, I think you, you could say that's just George being repetitive. But I think he's understanding just how powerful a moment this is. And I think he just wanted to filter that through a different set of characters in The Feast for Crows. And it's a great way of filtering it through there. I think, like, there's that great essay that Stefan Sasse wrote several, I think seven or eight years ago at this point, uh, about whether Brendan Tully's conduct at the Siege of Everrun, whether it was actually worth anything to actually defy the Lannisters in the phrase, because the cause of the Starks was dead at that point in the story. And Brendan Tully wouldn't know any better that there was a potential Stark uprising in the works up in the north and other things like that. I, I think it's I, I think it's fascinating because I don't think it's necessarily a repeat beat because there are some like interesting small differences there. The Blackfish is well aware that the Lannisters in the phrase committed the Red Wedding, and he speaks specifically about how Tywin Lannister had a part to play in the death of his niece and Catelyn. Courtney only hints here that he knows that Stannis had a part to play in Renly's death. He doesn't actually come out and say it the same way that Brendan Tully does. So I think the the one subtle and interesting difference between these two is that Brendan Tully might not have any reason to surrender because he has actually no reason mm. to believe that he wouldn't be him and his men would be spared the way that Jamie promises at the parlay. Whereas Cordy might have a little bit more of a reason. Hey, you got all these asshole lords behind Stannis who are there and they are, have all been spared by Stannis. So right, that's the kind of crucial difference I want to say. But it's an interesting way that George kind of does the same sort of scene, but does it in subtle different ways too. I think he, he ramps up the hostility because Jamie also has former asshole lords behind him, right? He has the phrase. Yep. But the difference is the phrase actively turned on Rob, whereas Renly's lords just like were there when he died and couldn't do anything about it. Right. So yeah, I think I think it's it's a it's a ramping up of tension and also there's there's a more intimacy involved because Jamie and the Blackfish have a particular relationship. 
where Stannis and Courtney Penrose don't seem to, and of course our POV is different. So yeah, I agree. There's enough differences that it makes them separate scenes, but I think George is, is definitely kind of trying to recapture that glory. And I think he does a great job. Jamie and the Blackfish is, is a wonderful scene. You did a you did that on Game of Owens, right? That was one of your chapters that you went, I, went on to them I for, I did, right? yeah. It was a lot of fun to back do that, in the day. that scene from back in the day. Yeah, a few years ago. Yeah, a lot of yep. fun. Great podcast. Feel free to check them out. because Absolutely. Yes, I love Game of Owens so much. So, shifting from that into our discussion portion of the episode, Courtney Penrose. What do we think of him? Again, he's one of the big one-off characters in The Song of Ice and Fire. Everyone likes talking about him. He's very hero-coded in this scene, as you say. He gets a lot of dialogue lines that you just want to pump your fist at. But there's there's some shades of gray going on here. So what do you think? Is Courtney Penrose a hero or a villain? So it's interesting. When I came into this episode, I would have said very firmly that he is a villain. And we I would take that perspective given the, given the fact that we learn from later chapters that Courtney is sending, and he mentions this very briefly in the chat in this chapter. But he mentions that the Stannis mentions that he has sent letters all over the realm attempting to get aid for himself. One of those letters ends up at the court of Joffrey of House Baratheon, saying that Courtney will swear allegiance to Joffrey in exchange for the Lannisters coming and relieving the siege and defeating Stannis in battle. That strikes me as a little bit more ambiguous than the character that we get here in this chapter it seems kind of as if courtney has not necessarily courting death necessarily he's seemingly buying time to allow others to kind of come to him but at this point and sans points this out in this chapter he says that no aid has come to him so please please for god's sake please surrender before you have to tragically pass away in your sleep um one night we know that cersei had all of robert's bastards murdered would courtney know this necessarily I maybe, maybe not. It's not exactly clear here. So if Courtney's major intent here is to save his beloved king's nephew in the form of Edric Storm, why attempt to surrender to the Lannisters? Why swear to them when there's a likelihood that they might be killed? And the other thing we also know too is that Stannis's letters went through all over the realm. We know from an Arya chapter that Stannis's letter reached Harrenhal. We know that Stannis's letter has reached River Run as well. We know that the the letter reached Randall Tarley's castle too, as Renly says in Catelyn's third chapter in A Clash of Kings. So it stands to reason that Courtney Penrose is aware that of Stannis's claim that Joffrey's a bastard born of incest. So. What does that actually, does that swearing to the Lancers actually endanger, or promising to swear allegiance to the the Lancers actually endanger Edric Storm's life, even if he doesn't know that Cersei just had all of Robert's bastards she could find murdered in King's Landing? I think it probably stands to reason that Courtney doesn't seem like an unintelligent guy here, that it does kind of seem at odds with what the message that Courtney is communicating here in this chapter. So... I originally came into this came into this podcast saying that he was more villainous than what is popular portrayed. But you make several excellent arguments in this episode itself about why Courtney doesn't want to necessarily surrender to Stannis and why Stannis might not be might have the same sort of reaction that Cersei and Joffrey might have to the boy, and that why why Courtney Penrose believes that Edric, Edric Storm's life might be threatened by surrendering himself surrendering the boy up to Stannis himself. You make great points. It's it's very difficult to conceive of why Courtney Penrose would think of the Lannisters as a good option. 
But I do think it's possible that he has reached the conclusion that they're a better option. And again, I, I, you make a great point that he must know about the, the twincest claim. And he, it is logical to conclude, even if he doesn't know about the murder of some of Robert's bastards, that Cersei and Joffrey being in charge of Edric would put the kid's life in danger. But, you know, maybe that just doesn't mean much to him compared to the visible fact of Renly's death <laughs> right near him. And so he thinks, are Cersei and Joffrey are potential threats to Edric? Maybe, but I think Stannis is a definite threat to Edric because he's already proven willing to, to kill a member of his family. And again, there's not, you can, you can say that there's not strict logic to that because Renly was directly between Stannis and power. Edric Storm really isn't. Like, he doesn't have a claim that could possibly get in Stannis' way. But, you know, n- none of what's esp- happening here is especially strict and logical and rational anymore. So that's, that's just kind of falling apart. I think it is it is possible, and this this might be projection that that Courtney Penrose is not intending to bend the knee to the Lannisters at all, and that he is just hoping for like the Lannisters come fight Stannis, come create a battle, come cr- create some kind of chaotic situation in which I can smuggle Edric Storm out of here. Right? Maybe that's what Courtney Penrose because I'm comparing him to Davos actually getting you know smuggling Edric Storm away from Dragonstone, and Courtney just doesn't have that you know option right now because he's under siege. Maybe he's hoping to try to create that situation somehow. Really, you know, I don't know. Really, I don't know how logical any of Courtney Penrose's words or actions are, and I don't mean I don't mean illogical in like a you know, hundred eighty degrees backwards way. I mean like I don't think he's necessarily thinking step by step. I think I think he's just going in the moment. How do I keep this kid safe? Whatever it takes, you know. Well, here's the thing too, and this is something I didn't really think about until just now, but. Stannis makes this argument to Davos in Davos's first chapter, the one we covered with Sir Frank B, somewhere in the chat, fighting for Stannis, of course, in that he says that he needs Edric Storm because he needs to have proof of the twincest that Cersei and Jaime have committed because right. they can say, hey, look at Edric Storm. This is actually Robert's acknowledged bastard. And look at Joffrey, Tommen, and Marcella. There is a clear difference that goes beyond simply me saying as much because it sounds self-serving for me to say as much. What's interesting is that in this chapter is that Stannis doesn't say, I need Edric Storm for this reason. He doesn't explain himself the same way he explains himself to Davos. And this gets back to something we have talked about over and over again about Stannis Baratheon, that he's in the quiet confines of a one-on-one conversation with Davos Seaworth. He comes across as much more sympathetic as we're going to unpack at significant length next week. But when he's out in the open around everyone else, he seemingly cannot get past that vocal hurdle, if you want to call it that, that conversational stumbling block where he gets to explain his actions. Because I think something that's really important to explain here is that at this point, Melisandre might have need of Edric Storm's blood in order Mm -hmm. for the king's blood sacrifice. But it doesn't read to me that she has explained this to Stannis at this point. This is something that occurs in A Storm of Swords. All the same is that Stannis likely has no idea that Melisandre is planning on once Edric Storm in order to sacrifice him for his king's blood to raise stone dragons. But now that we have, but we don't, he doesn't, we don't know that. And Stannis doesn't explain that to Sir Courtney Penrose. Would explaining that actually have resulted in the peaceful surrender of Storm's End? I don't know. I, I, I have a hard time just kind of deciphering that part of it. It's kind of an AU that kind of just kind of cropped into my mind right now. Yeah, I mean, it's... Yeah, you make a great point. It's, it's So much of it, I think, comes down to Courtney's actions being heroic individually in isolation, and then when you zoom out to the context of power, that's why they become a problem. 
And yeah, the same thing happens with with Ned, and it's it's the authority. Like it's just that if Courtney was just like one guy trying to keep Edric safe, like you know, just a, a you know, just a knight, you know, a knight wandering the wild with his charge, trying to keep him safe from all comers, he would be an unambiguous hero. But like the problem is that it's you know the the people he's offering Edric to are the Lannisters, and the problem is that he has all these other men at his command that are you know he's, he's risking their lives, and so I think I think I think. Courtney is is a, a, a heroic man who is being put in a situation in which there is no way to be heroic, and mm-hmm. I think he's he's desperately trying to find a way to still be heroic. And again, that's kind of a strange parallel to Stannis, uh, in, in in his own way. And ultimately, ultimately, I I come down towards towards heroic for Courtney Penrose mm-hmm. uh, because I I think I think he lacks a plan, and I think that's ultimately what Davos has over him is a plan. Once he once he uh, smuggles Edric Storm away, I think he. He is is just extremely, like scared and sad and freaked out and and isn't isn't thinking super far ahead. Like, what does he think is going to happen if he if he loses that single combat? Does right. he care? I mean, it's well, well, you know, Davos talks a little bit more about this. We'll get into next week, but I I think he um, I mean, uh, like like uh, Ned says, right? That the only time you can be brave is when you're afraid, and I think that's what's happening with with, with Courtney, and I think his his desperation. Is, is revealing the best part of him and that he wants to keep Edric safe, but I think desperation also clouds your mind. And I think that might be what we're seeing here. I think that is an excellent point and an excellent way to kind of close out this episode. So, wow, that's only part one of our, our three-part series on A Clash Kings Davos 2. So thank you so much for those of you who have been watching us and thank you so much for those of you who've been listening to us. We really appreciate your eyes and ears every single week and we will be proceeding forward and every week going for our chapter by chapter analyses. As always, if you have the chance, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, anywhere and everywhere where you find our podcasts. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacastasoiaf. You can follow us on Twitter at notacastasoiaf or shoot us an email at notacastasoiaf. And you can find me uh, over on Twitter uh, at, uh, at porkwen. And you can find me at Brenda B. Fish on Twitter, Brenda B. Fish on Reddit. My website is warsandpoliticsviceandfire.wordpress.com. We want to shout out and thank our high lords and ladies on Patreon, Lord of the Squishers and Warden of the Deep, Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Eastwood of Introvert Isle, Septon Maribald, the Shoeless Sage, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolf's Wood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North and Keeper of Secrets, Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys and Lady of Jameson, Lady Britt, Bastard Mistress of Harrenhal, Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood, Lady Dillsdale, the Star Spear of Crescent Hill, Sir Way of Course, Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore, Lord Mark Connington, Heir to Griffin's Roost, Lord Sam Kay, Sir Michael Mertens, Wisdom Benjicut, Alchemist of Setson Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Bull and De Morgan, Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping, Lord J. Manderley, Baker of the Frey Pies, Septon Merrifull Head of Hair, Lady Silverwing, Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State, and Caboth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light. Thank you so much to all our High Lords and Ladies. Absolutely. Thank you all very, very much for your support. It means so much to us. So... Join us next week for part two of A Clash of Kings Davos 2, in which Stannis and Davos engage in a philosophical debate about where power comes from and what to do with it. That's going to be an even better uh, episode and even better scene than this one, I think. That's uh, one of the most, I think, just beautifully written and trenchant philosophical uh, conversations in the whole series. It's so great. Get philosophical too about Stannis' culpability and Renly's death. Yes. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you to those of you who are watching. We will stick around and answer some of you guys' questions and chat with you guys for a few minutes. We will see you guys next week. <laughs> <laughs>